Welcome. I'm Paul Bishop, your host for this installment of Six Gun Justice Conversations. These are bonus downloads where my co-host Richard Prosh and I get to hang around the virtual Six Gun Justice podcast water cooler, talking with friends and fellow writers who are also fans of the Western genre. With me today is Hawk Hawkheim, author of the Johann Gunther Western Adventures. Hawk is a retired Texas police detective and a former U.S. Army investigator. An expert practitioner of numerous martial arts self-defense systems, he teaches 20 or more seminars a year dealing with stick, knife, and gun combatives and self-defense survival to law enforcement and military entities around the world. He has written numerous fiction and nonfiction books, selling a combined total of over 35,000 hardcovers, paperbacks, and ebooks. Hello, friend. You teach self-defense to law enforcement around the world. You're an accomplished author. How do you fit all this into your time? It's a tight fit. However, under the COVID situations, my traveling is yours. Very limited. I usually do 22 to, I don't know, sometimes 25 seminars a year all around the world in 11 countries. Sometimes military, sometimes police, sometimes just regular civilians. And also to some of the specific martial arts that I've been in the past, I still have followers in those. Now I'm down to nine seminars a year. I'm a homebody now, so I can spend a lot of time writing. Is that your usual way of doing things? When you're home, you write, and when you're on the road, you're doing law enforcement stuff? We'll read and write on the plane. And when you're flying to Australia, that is a lot of free time. And you go to Germany. I've been to China twice. That's an enormous flight. So I stay pretty busy on the plane, and usually in the hotels at night, I'm writing something. I have the blogs and how-to books and so on. So I have many topics to cover. With your self-defense classes, where did you develop the expertise for that? Was that on the job in the real world? I've always had an odd fascination with it based on growing up and seeing fights in the movies and fights on TV. And I don't know what the initial kickoff is to get me interested, but I left New York, New Jersey right after I graduated high school on a motorcycle and took off pretty much on the road for almost two years and wound up, I discovered a karate school back in the day when there weren't any to speak of, unlike today. And so I said, I think I'm going to go to that. It was Ed Parker's Kempo Karate. And it was all adults, no children. And I was there about a year. Then I decided to go into the Army, which you get more training for that. Then the Military Police Academy, there's more training for that. And then I got out and I continued with old school jiu-jitsu, karate, Filipino martial arts. I'm always doing something like that. But I'm always interested in generic survival from police work. This, the stuff they show you on Monday morning in a class doesn't really work that well Wednesday night on Third Avenue when you're trying to arrest a crazy person. So I've always been pursuing handstick knife gun generic successful material. But all that other stuff is the background that you got to slog through to learn fighting. And so that's where I am now, just generic handstick knife gun fighting. I didn't think this was going to happen to me, but people began to realize I've collected this military police martial information. What do you know? I'll pay you. Come and show us what you know. And next thing you know, I'm on a plane 22 times a year. It's the same thing when I go out and do training and interview and interrogation. There's so much that's textbook stuff, but the textbook stuff doesn't apply on the street. What I try to do is I try to give detectives 
tools on their tool belt that they can put to use immediately when they leave the class. Real hands-on, common sense stuff that works. And I think it has to be the same way with self-defense and law enforcement is stuff's hard to remember, especially when the fight starts, right? Mike Tyson said, everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face. So you have to have this core of very simple, very effective techniques that you don't forget that you can use once you've been punched in the face. Yeah, it's true. And of course, I'm interested in the commitment. It's like tennis. You just you have to play tennis regularly. The skills are perishable. With the various police training companies I've been with and so forth, you have to find the people that are committed to doing it with some regularity. Otherwise, you're not that good anymore. Unless you're a superstar, in which case you achieve a base level that is superior to everyone else. But that's 20 years, 25 years later. I just try to keep promoting that information. And I get very interested in it when I'm doing it. And I'm always on the hunt or prowl for something I can filter. Is it different? Is it better? That type of thing. And that keeps me pretty interested. How does your knowledge of self-defense translate into the action scenes in your books? I've been told through the years, it's very realistic. There are literary tricks you can use for action, short sentences or whatever. But you talk about Mike Tyson being punched in the mouth. I have been punched. I've been hospitalized. When these things happen, there's a personal feeling and attachment that you can convey that brings more life to the action scenes. And then I can expand upon that with these sometimes big shooting scenes or whatever that are occurring in my books. I have taught small writing groups, realistic fighting. What is a fight? It doesn't matter if it's a Western or a privatized story or whatever. I like to try to have them enhance their writing about stuff like that. Does the discipline of martial arts translate into the discipline of being a writer? I guess it does. And the discipline of athletics in general, the commitment to always be working out. My wife will say, too, that I'm a pretty dedicated person. I'm very lucky that what I'm dedicated in is what I really want to do. (laughs) And number one, first and foremost, my whole life looking back and now, my number one interest is writing. And the second is being a detective. I'm retired, and I still pretty much miss it every day, as they say. You and I have had a similar career path. I was just so blessed to be able to do the two things in life I really wanted to do, and that was put words on paper and get published and put villains in jail. They always tell the police, especially now more than ever, you're not going to fight crime. Don't think you're going to be a crime fighter, but a detective fights crime. And I slid right into that category, and we're pretty much lone wolf investigators in Texas. There are some teams being developed now here and there, but by and large, they gave you a case in the morning and you went out by yourself. And if you thought you were going to get jumped somewhere, you asked your best friend to go with you. (laughs) But other than that, you're pretty much on your own. And those were terrific times. Our city sits atop Fort Worth and Dallas. In my heyday in the 80s, Dallas and Fort Worth were top crime capitals, but became very civilized and boring. So it was time for me to retire. Now that I'm older, being a bored cop seems very good. When you started your writing career, you started in nonfiction. Actually, in 1979 or so, I was always interested in writing and I was always interested in art. I could never do the two things at the same time. I'd do periods of four months, five months, switching back and forth. 
But I was a street cop, and then we had several local newspapers. And there was a small one. Business brought me into this guy, the owner. And I said, hey, would you be interested in a column about policing, life, whatever? He said, absolutely. And so I started writing this column, weekly newspaper, pretty popular, very small. And this guy dabbled in some book. I read way more nonfiction than fiction. And I read this huge, gigantic translated biography of Pancho Villa. And it was fascinating. And in it, I saw these fantastic escapes of Pancho Villa. They're amazing stories. And so I started to write a series in the newspaper, The Great Escapes of Pancho Villa. And there's eight thrilling episodes of it. And they said, can we do this as a book? I said, yeah, sure. And they made a local book out of it. And they sold it through the newspaper. Then the other newspaper picked it up. And that was my first book. So, yes, it is nonfiction. And, of course, that is buried through time for many years. Of course, my third Gunther adventure is all about meeting Pancho Villa, which I had all that repertoire of information from the past. But initially, even though that first book was a Western in a nonfiction way, you then wrote mostly police stuff and mysteries and hard-boiled type of stuff for a while. Did you read a lot of Westerns, or did you just read Western history? I probably read more Western history than Westerns. And my biggest influence, of course, which we share, is the 50s Westerns, the 60s Westerns. I was a kid in the 50s. My dad and I watched Have Gun, Will Travel and all of those great shows. And they all went right deep into my brains. I have a real affinity for various movies, like we both share for the professionals. That is just the best movie. It just captivated my imagination. And it does seem that 1890s, 1900, that period was very attractive to me. Every time I saw something about that, I just absolutely had to see it. And so movies and television have more of a great effect on me than reading a bunch of nonfiction. The Professionals with Lee Marvin and Burt Lancaster, which was a perfect storm of casting. And one of my favorite authors, Ben Haas, who wrote under the pseudonym John Benteen, he really took the Lee Marvin character and turned it into a character of his own called Fargo. That time period is what he wrote about in this international adventurer. Now, I know you weren't familiar with those until you and I first really talked about them. Yes. But when I came across the first Gunther story, I went... Thank goodness we've got more Fargo books. <laughs> I'm sorry, yeah. that was my initial reaction to it. But once I got into it, Gunther's definitely his own character. But in many ways, he has ties to this character that you were totally unaware of. Yes. What was your impetus for writing the Gunther novels? Where did Johann Gunther come from? For years, I was avoiding writing fiction. And I just had this epiphany, I guess it was 2003 or something, that once again reignited this importance of storytelling and how vital it is. People know more about the Civil War from Gone with the Wind than they ever did in a history class. And I was attracted to that time period. The movies, Bite the Bullet with Gene Hackman, they were Teddy Roosevelt's Cuban War veterans. That fascinated me. So these movies had this effect. And I've always been attracted so much to have gun will travel. My family came from Germany about the 1880s. They stopped in New York, chasing the great American dream as it was perceived then. There were a lot of wars in Europe, inter-country wars. I think they were trying to escape. And some of them went to Texas and Arizona. My grandmother went out there to Arizona area, frightened by the Indian Wars and Geronimo, moved back to New York. And that's why I was in New York. On my motorcycle, 
I wound up in Texas and discovered Texas is full of German ancestors. And so I thought, let me make this interesting and make this German guy come over. And as I had Gunther's life figured out in the beginning, and now I'm catching up to the stories. This American medieval story is his origin story, and it's the fourth one, how he left New York City and joined the army, and as a young man wandered off out of the army and accidentally meets a former French police detective from Paris, France, who becomes the police chief in Paris, Texas, and his autistic deputy, Stinky Moses. And he meets them on a manhunt and he helps them, solves a series of murders in the tri-state area. And I don't want to spoil the story, but two governors, Arkansas and Oklahoma, to get him away from the killer, give him the opportunity to go to West Point. And here again, we're fleshing out a paladin-ish kind of background. He goes to West Point, and next thing you know, he's in Cuba working with Teddy Roosevelt, and then he's in the Philippines, and the series continues, which is the book I'm working on now, is Vice President Roosevelt sends him to China to rescue three doctors who were Shanghai. So at any rate, the books are catching up to the story. Do you treat these as adventure novels structured as Westerns? Because that's the way I see them. Yes, I do with the Western ethic. He is a Texan. He is a lawman. Later on, of course, he runs a detective agency in Fort Worth, Texas, and in the 1900s, 1906, 1905 or so. But I still am enraptured by the international journey, the Texas character put into China, put into the Khyber Pass, put into Cuba. That's a big adventure. And I love the title, My Gun is My Passport, as it applies to Gunther's adventures. And that's a scene that I envisioned for them to pass through the Khyber Pass. And then Gunther's with a bunch of people on this mission, and that's when he looks at the head guy of the tribe and says, the Amir will not grant you passport through the pass. And that's when Gunther says, my gun is my passport. And that started the whole thing. <laughs> Hello. So American Medieval is the latest novel in the Gunther series? Yes. You are working on the fifth novel now. Do you have a title for it? Well, yes, and, and you and I conferred on that a little bit. I originally thought it should be called the China Shanghai because these three doctors graduate medical school and they decide to celebrate in a Chinese restaurant on the San Francisco docks in their Shanghai. And so Teddy Roosevelt, beholding to various rich people, sends his former Cuban officer to try to rescue them. And, of course, Gunther has his sidekick, the Filipino scout, Hefe, with him. And they have an entourage, like the outlaw Josie Rails movie. These characters connect to him, and they have an exciting adventure in China, but they get stuck in the 55 days at Peking siege, which was amazing and horrible. And it truly is a China Alamo. And that's why I've decided pretty much to call it the China Alamo. If it was an old school paperback, I think the China Shanghai would be a good name. But this is really about the siege. Thanks so much for being with us today. Sorry for some of the technical glitches, but I've enjoyed speaking with you and I will talk again soon. Okay, you hang in there. Good luck with the new books. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out the Six Gun Justice website at sixgunjustice.com for information on prior Six Gun Justice conversations Six-Gun Justice Speed Lessons, and full-length episodes of the Six-Gun Justice Podcast, along with the regularly updated book reviews, articles, and interviews covering all aspects of the Western genre. Until next time.
Be kind to others, be kind to yourself, and keep your masks up. Adios. We're out of here. Let's ride.